0: jump in, 1 Thessalonians 4, (coughs) we're going to do the first five verses, I apologize for continuing to move slow, I thought I was going to be able to get all the way through verse 12, turns out I can't do it, I I study and I read and I start pulling stuff apart, and then um, the text just tells me we have some stuff we need to talk about, and, um, and it makes sense, so we stay in it and we get as much out of it as we possibly can, I think that's what we should do. God wrote it, we read it, we take it to heart, it's the truth, and we're going to just keep doing that. So let's recap last week, we finished the third chapter of Thessalonians, and we drilled down on the definition of two very important things, right? Faith and love. So we talked about what faith is, and how it's applicable, and then how what love is, and how that's applicable to us, and we discussed exactly what they are, and not just loose belief in something, faith is not just like, oh, I've got faith that the... Yeah, my paycheck's going to come next week. This is a deep-seated, you know, explainable, attainable understanding of the truth. And we learned that from Romans, faith is what? The assurance. Faith is assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So when you have faith, when people ask, how do you believe in a God that you've never seen? You're like, I have faith. You're not just saying, I have some... Ridiculous, loose, uneducated faith. I have a deep-seated understanding. I have assurance in things that I've hoped for and a conviction of things that I haven't seen. That's really important, right? We defined love and we went to 1 Corinthians 13 to find out what love is. And we went through the whole entire list of what love looks like, right? Patient, kind, long-suffering, all of those things. Important as we define love, if you say you love your wife or you love your husband, Look at all those little things and think to yourself, when I love them, am I actually doing all these things or have I reserved some of these for me, right? Paul wanted believers to play a very specific role uh, there in the church in Thessalonica. And uh, what he was trying to do is help them perfect their faith, make their faith better, lift it up, make it solid, get the foundation good and have them love each other well, right? And it's done through a series of things we talked about. Prayer, reading the word of God, study, obedience to him, and asking God to increase your love for one another, which we should always do. How can I love my spouse better? How can I love my children better? How can I love my friends better? That's a good prayer to have, right? How can I do better for my friends through my actions, my words, the way that I pray for them, those sorts of things. So now we're gonna talk about who we please because this is really important. You're gonna see why. Who do we please? Who do we aim to gratify through our actions, our words, our time, our honor, our attention, and our focus. When we spend time thinking about things, praying about things, serving each other and others, how do we try to please people or God? And who is it that we focus on first? And how does that affect us as we grow in our faith, right? Which is our assurance of things hoped for. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 4. And we're going to just read five verses. So go with me, if you will, if you have your Bible with you, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to do (coughs) 1, excuse me, through 5. So it says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who, who do not know God." Right, And that's pretty much the end of that. It goes on to some other things. Um, and and we're going to get into this just a little bit more. What does this mean when we are trying to please God? So, depending on the version of Bible that you read, when you opened up in the first verse, that word "finally" is there. Um, and it's really kind of a. It's not the ending to the letter. It's not saying, "All right, finally, we're going to give this." So it's this word. It's a Greek adjective, and it can also mean and furthermore. So it lets us know that Paul just kind of has more to say about faith and love. And more specifically, Paul wants to explain that as God has established our hearts blameless and holiness before our God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints, we have a response that shows our faith and our love for him and for each other. This is our response to him. And I want to make this study as simple and as plain language and as applicable to our walk as I can. This is really important. It's easy to just tell people what not to do. Don't do this. And then there's like, well, why not do that? It seems easy. It feels good, looks good, smells good, tastes good. Why not just do that? Seems very, why, why are you trying to tell me what not to do? Who are you? Who's the authority? How do we make it applicable for our walk? So we're going to be very candid with each other about some things. So go to verse one with me and read it It says finally then brothers we ask and urge you in the lord jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk walk to please god just as you are doing that you do so more and more so paul says that he's already told them how to walk what does the word walk mean we've talked about this a few times it means conduct how you conduct yourself when you walk in the lord there's a way you conduct your your life your business your family so how do you conduct yourself? That we walk to please God. He says that they are, they're doing it right now. I mean, they are obviously working at walking to please God, but he encouraged them, encourages them to do it more, right? So wouldn't we do this even with our own children? If they're doing well in school, you wouldn't be like, hey, you got a group of grades on your last report card, so don't worry about the rest of the semester. You're already doing good. <laughs> that just doesn't make any sense. What makes more sense is you are doing well. Continue to do well. There's still more growth for you. Continue to strive to do better, right? And then he reinforces that in verse two that they know what instructions were given to them. So he's like, we've talked about this before. I've given you these instructions. Keep doing it. And he's like, I've told you already. I'm telling you again. So he's continuing to do it. This call to obedience is one that's so hard for believers. And it's hard if, it's, if it's hard for you, Believe me, it's 10 times harder for me. I have always hated being told what to do. People are different types of learners, right? Everybody's got those learners where they're like tactile learners and some people are listeners and some people are visual. I am the person that if you tell me what to do, I am like, I have already turned you off, go do that. Like I'd much rather you show me what to do that I see you doing it and I can mimic you and I'm like that. And secondly to that, if it's something that I don't like and you just tell me to do it, uh, it like very easy for me to be like, eh, <laughs> it's really not that important to me right now because you just told me to do it. Why? Because I don't see value in it, right? Can you imagine you not walking a Christian life but then telling your kids to walk a Christian life? Telling them to do it. That's why mimicking is such a good, important thing for believers. Imagine this, you keep your room trashed, but you tell your kids to clean their room. Hey, go clean your room. Why, like, that doesn't make any sense. You don't clean your room. Just telling somebody to do something just to tell them, it bears no value, right? So if you're like me, even a little bit, and I'm probably the worst of all sinners when it comes to this, you just tell me something, hey, don't do this, I'll be the first guy to just try it, right? So. Um, and it's one of the things that leads our youth away from the church, frankly, I think, because I think the church has come to this point now where in many cases, telling people to do things becomes like a legalistic action, right? Hey, you need to do this. And in this case, we're going to talk about sexual immorality just for a minute, but there's a, a bunch of things we don't want to do when they get their, their car, don't speed. Well, Why? This doesn't make, just don't tell me not to speed. So we're telling kids in the church that there's a whole laundry list of things they can't do. And If you're like me, growing up as a young Catholic kid, there was a lot of things that I shouldn't do. And I just, I just went ahead and did them. Because I had no foundation. And I didn't realize who my identity was in, so it just didn't, didn't make any sense to follow rules. And I think at some point with our youth, when they start doing things that aren't good for them, at some point, it just becomes okay. And then now they're doing a whole pile of things that aren't good for them and they are just astray. They're just gone because the world has convinced them that all those things are good for them and they've lost their identity. We're gonna talk about that identity in just a second, right? So getting people to understand why we are called to be obedient in some things or in some ways, right? That it's not a blind obedience or following a set of rules. I hate that. Just follow rules to follow rules, right? I mean. I think everybody in this room is military. Like just sometimes things are just dumb. Just follow these rules, why? Because I said so. That, it's just idiotic, it doesn't make any sense. There's gotta be a greater platform to this, there's gotta be a foundation to it, why? So not just to follow rules. So none of these things, they, none of them aid in your salvation, number one. Just following a set of rules, does that get you saved? Nope. There's nothing you can do to get yourself saved. So you could be the most pious person out there. Like, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't swear. I'm not sexually immoral. I, I you know, I'm, I never break the speed limit. I've never raised my hand to somebody. I've done all, look at, look, I give half my money to charity. You've done all of these things. You followed all these rules. Guess what? Getting into heaven? Yes or no? It's got to be Jesus that does the work. That's it. Period, there's no work that you can do, right? Following all the Bible's ordinances um, may never make your life any better either. You know, I know we like to say this sometimes, but it's like if we act a certain way, maybe God will bless you in a certain way. That's, that's not always true. I mean, we got missionaries that are like some of the greatest people on the planet, they've laid it all down. I mean, these amazing missionaries go to places like Africa where they end up dying on the mission field probably some of the most pious, loving people out there. Their life didn't get better intrinsically, existentially, because they just were acting right. So we have to separate the two, acting right as a result of who we identify with and wanting to be obedient, not trying to attain something specifically, right? So then why be obedient would be the question. So why do it? If it doesn't save me, why do it? And then why tell our kids that there's a way that they should live? Why tell our kids this is good for you and this is not good for you? And why hold yourselves to a biblical standard? So there's gotta be a why. So if it doesn't save you, then why, right? Um, And we were kind of talking about it this morning. There's this big thing going around called antinomianism. It's kind of like Greasy Grace. It's like, you know, you can be saved and once you're saved, the antinomianist would be like, well, I don't, there's not a way to live as a Christian. I'm already saved. I can basically do whatever I want. And that is untrue because God calls us to be holy. He calls us to be different. He calls us to be set aside. He wants you to live differently, right? There's this really great passage at the beginning of 1 John 3 that helps us to understand holiness. And we've discussed this in the past a little bit, and I really want to make sure you understand what Paul's talking about. What is holiness? We've talked about this word, holiness, hagios. Um, The word holiness means to be set aside, to be different than. So we're different than everybody else. We're set aside from the rest of the world. And we're going to discuss sanctification a bit as well, because sanctification is really like the action or the verb of being holy. It's the same root word of hagios. Um, it's hagiosmos it's this idea of hagios is you're set aside this is the action of becoming more holy or becoming more set aside becoming more different it's the process so listen to this one john three it starts out like this see what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of god and so we are the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself and is pure. To purify as he is pure. Both of these words are the same word as holiness. We are becoming more purified, becoming more pure as he is pure. It's part of this process that the father has taken us in. The father calls us children and we're different. We're different because we're his kids. I mean, are your kids different because they're your kids? I would say most definitely. How do I know? Because Chase looks like you guys when he comes in and not because of the drool on his shirt that's not I don't know what i'm yes. saying it's that's like weird. yeah <laughs> like oh <laughs> uh, but he he looks different so when he comes in I'm, i can tell you're his parents you know for to pick him out in a room right and so as he gets older there's going to be things he picks up on euphemisms things he says the way he walks the way he acts things that he does as a response to the way you raise him i'm going to be like I know who his parents are. Aren't we not the same way with the Father? Because he has us grow up in him. We are more like him than we are the world, right? And so that's why we, we know we can identify with the Father. And it's not about being better than other people either. Being different than other people does not mean being better than other people. You could be the most holy, most pious person in the world, and who are you better than? None. What did Paul call himself? The chief of Sinners, you say, like, I'm, I'm worse than all of you. This is Paul, you know, the greatest apostle to you know, sense Jesus to walk and give the message of, of Christ to the entire world is basically like, I'm basically worse than all of you, but we're going to continue to strive to get better. So, it doesn't make you better than other people, even in, in this case, we're going to talk about sexual sin. Hey, you got it all together, and you're married life and everything's perfect and you and your wife honor each other well and there you know you were virgins when you married and everything is perfect and loving and at every aspect and angle things are perfect are you better than somebody who is sinful in that aspect no you have just understand your identity in God and so you choose to live a life differently right so we need to set that aside because thinking we're better than others doesn't help us serve them in any way right we're not blindly following rules or going through the motions to please a bunch of things so we don't please any church or any person that's just not going to happen i think this is a problem with a lot of churches now as well it's like i mean you know there's fire and brimstone churches that'll just yell at people to follow rules now are they right that you should follow the rules yes But when you deliver the message like you're going to hell for doing that, you are not helping anybody out. It does not work. So where do you find that line between affirming somebody's sin and then letting them know that it's sinful and that God has a better plan for them. So we need to work that out in our message. So pleasing the church, pleasing people in the church, pleasing your spouse, pleasing your parents. It's not a legalistic set of rules that gets you into heaven. As we talked about before, we're children of God and we're different. That's why we are Obedient. We're children of God and we're different. So Paul continues this in verse three. So let's read verse three. Um, as we begin, this it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Right? God's will is to sanctify you. Again, sanctification is the process of becoming holy. So he's not dwelling on this point. This concept is repeated numerous times in Leviticus as God tries to get Israel to realize they're different from their neighboring pagan people. And 1 Peter 1 gives a phenomenal exposition to this concept of becoming holy as your Father is holy. And the paraphrase of 1 Peter 1 is this, because of God's great mercy, because of his great mercy, we're born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection. Our inheritance, what we get for Christ's death on the cross, It's imperishable. So you can't kill it. It's going to last forever. It's undefiled. It's holy. It's perfect. It's unfading. It will never go away. And it's kept for us in heaven, which is in the most protected place it could possibly be. And because of this, because of all those things, we're obedient and not conformed to the world or our own understanding. We shall be holy because he is holy, because we identify with him. So Paul specifically talks about sexual immorality in this case, okay? We're gonna talk about that just for a second. We can reasonably assume a couple things. This is a problem in the Roman Empire because Paul goes over it in like all of his letters. So he's like, don't be sexually immoral. He uses that same word pornea, uses it over and over and over, which is a very general sense of a word of sexual immorality. So Paul was a Jew, So his understanding of sexual morality would have been what? The same as Christ, who Christ used the same word in the Sermon on the Mount, which would have been marriage between a man and a woman, right, who saved themselves for the marriage bed and then um, served and loved one another within the confines of marriage until death do they part. So that's what the Jewish marriage would have looked like. So sexual immorality from his point of view would have been Anything outside of that is immoral, okay? We don't even need to drill down on that. And I know that there are people who will be like, but what about stop? What about it? The standard is that. Anything outside of the standard is sexual immorality. Now, it's a whole other conversation to talk about what things inside of a marriage are okay, and we'll do that at a different time. But uh, for these purposes, Sexual immorality is outside of uh, marriage. So Paul's talking about it a lot. So it's a problem in the Roman Empire. It's a problem in Thessalonica, which is why, because he's telling the church, hey, you're doing a good job. Oh, but hey, this one thing, you need to work on this, which means it's a problem probably in the church as well. Um, I just want to talk about this for a second. It's a little bit commentarian, uh, which I don't usually do, but just bear with me. So there's this first century writer, his name's Suetonius. He was like a a Greek historian, right? Um, And he talked about sexual practices of the Roman Caesars. Because those got, I mean, you almost can't make up the stuff that these guys were doing. It is, it would blow your mind. The stuff that's on TV and on the news today that I look at and I shudder from, these guys were doing way, you know, 2,000 years before the internet. Um, But he revealed some of the horrible practices of Rome's leaders as extremely promiscuous, like sleeping their way into power. That's not a new idea. Um, With men and with women, taking wives, sons, and daughters of others to please their own desires. So like people that, you know, their generals and people that worked in their army, they would like just notice that they had a good looking wife, daughter, or son and be like, hey, send the guards out there to get that person's child and bring them to me just for their own pleasure. Absolutely crazy some of the stuff that was going on um and to if you're ever to look into suetonius and you just kind of do the bullet list of the caesars and what they did to get where they are the sexual immorality was off the charts and it often included slavery and then death because if you fought against them because caesars were like gods it's ridiculous so one of the other problems back then was public prostitution which we've talked about right public prostitutions of all kinds and of all ages and everything was legal it was available and it was public and there was no penalty for married men to have whatever they wanted for rome married men could basically just go out and have men women boys girls it didn't matter they could do whatever they wanted uh, men and women did marry freely in Rome, which was, was kind of odd because the woman doesn't have many rights once she's in the marriage, but she does have some sort of say in being married to the man. So um, very interesting, <clears throat> but there's no contract. So you were married, but there's no contract. So, um, And women were often mostly used for childbearing. So it was kind of like you had your wife and she was there to raise the family have more kids, care for the home, and then the guys did whatever they wanted. Uh, And interestingly, with no contract, we can talk about this at another time, but I'll just say it out loud. If you ever want to talk about what's happening with marriage today in the United States and why it's such a problem, is we can look at one of our most uh, famous modern presidents, um, uh, President Reagan, who started with an idea called no-fault divorce when he was governor of California and why that's been such a big problem for us and for sexual immorality in America today um so that's a whole other topic um so pornography was also public and accepted back then so graven images so they would carve things and make pictures pornographic images and giant pornographic statues uh and to include public pornographic shows so they didn't have the internet so they would just do it in the public square full on pornography it was it's ridiculous so it was a pretty rough culture um, comparing the times though, we're really not that far off if you think about it. I mean, we're, we're there. The only difference is you don't need to walk like down the street to some sort of Coliseum to watch something happen. You can actually do it inside your home. There are things you can do in your house that are just unbelievably uh, disgusting, right? So we're not that far off. And the concept of physical pu- purity um, was unique in the Christian community as I believe it is now. Like this idea that we're even gonna talk about being sexual and moral today and here, there's not a bunch of people talking about this in the community today. It's not a thing because open sexual relationships are just accepted everywhere. I mean, I, it, it blows my mind the things, especially my youngest daughter, who's like very open and honest about like everything in the world that's going on around her being down at unc charlotte the stuff is absolutely disgusting that is just out and open uh, for our kids to consume in the world today it's it's crazy so um we're living in pretty rough times although i don't think they were much different we just have better access let's talk about this for a second sexual immorality in the existential does it cause a problem for us so we talked about how just because you're pure It might not give you some sort of like, oh, you're being pure, so you're blessed. Just because you're following rules doesn't mean life's just gonna get better. That's a prosperity gospel concept where I do good things and then good things come back to me. That's karma, that's not Jesus. I do good things out of obedience to God. I get saved because of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. right? I do obedience because he saved me, not because I'm trying to be saved or blessed. But when you don't do good things, there's definitely bad things that come out of it. So when we are disobedient in ways, especially like sexual immorality, are there bad things that come out of it? Here's some disadvantages of it. More than 1 million STDs are contracted daily worldwide, according to the CDC. 1 million STDs are contracted every day. I was When I read that, I just blew my, can you imagine? A day. 50% of marriages end in divorce. 40% of those are from infidelity. One in five women experience sexual assault. 25% of men experience sexual violence. 50% of those are from people that they know, from people that they're intimate with in their life. Kids in divorced homes or born out of wedlock experience tremendous disparity in poverty, not finishing high school, teenage pregnancy, and imprisonment. Over 75% of our prison inmates came from single parent homes. Pornography uh, presents a whole giant pile of other challenges to include addiction, depression, negative perceptions of self and sexuality, and neglect of other portions of people's lives where people actually get so addicted to it that they set other things aside that are important. And then the sex traffic trade, which is a true pandemic in the world. Like we talked about pandemics, like all the people that are stuck in sex trafficking. We won't even get into the world, but just in the United States alone, 15 to 50,000 women children are sex slaves in the United States, 15 to 50,000 people, more people, if you take 50,000 in the number, then exist in the Pinehurst, Southern Pines, Aberdeen, Tri-City area, are in sexual slavery in the United States. Up to 300,000 men, women, and children are trafficked through pornography and prostitution every year in the United States. And I think if you listen to Craig Sawyer, it, the numbers could get close to 600,000 a year. Over half a million people are traded on a sex trade in slavery in the United States every year. How is that possible? That's heartbreaking. Sexual immorality. People crave things they shouldn't. This also includes a breakdown of our community. We've just seen this recently. This evil initiative to get our kids into some sex-fueled, crazed, drag show in Southern Pines where people who are business people in our community will invite people to bring their children into a show where men dressed like women with last names that I won't repeat here are doing sex acts on each other. They call it freedom. They call it love to accept them you imagine bringing your children in to watch these men do these things to each other? If you look it up, look at the names of the guys that their drag names are, and you can tell just by the names that they're not doing this as some sort of show. It's, it's for the sex portion of this, it has nothing to do with freedom or love. We can see that the sin against our own bodies and the bodies of others has existential consequences, right? It's a problem then, it's a problem now. But the real issue, issue for us is that God has a higher standard for us, right? We're told in subsequent verses, you know how to control your own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion, just like the Gentiles who do not know God. We, they don't know. So you've heard me say this before. I don't go to sinners ever. I would never stand at one of those things and do some sort of like christian protest I, it, 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 just, it just doesn't work to stand outside there with signs yelling at people and just oh, i'm gonna pray over you it's, it's, it just doesn't make any sense to tell they, they don't know they're sinners you yell at somebody they're a sinner and these people go to these like big gay pride parades and they're like you're sinners and you're going to hell dude you are not loving people you need to present people with the gospel it's the holy spirit that convicts people and saves people's lives you need to stop being that person you are not helpful If you don't love people, don't go engage them. Just stay at home. You can be a good pious Christian right in your living room and you stay out of reaching people for Christ because you're not helpful if you're telling people how bad they are. Because let's just go right to the point where you're judging a community that does not know Jesus. That's sinful. So we need to make sure we're not doing that. Secondly, to dishonor God through our actions. Uh, We're not to transgress and wrong our brothers and sisters with this type of sin because the Lord is an avenger, right? So we are not called to make somebody else hurt because of our actions. It has consequences, right? And people don't think about this. I fear kids who go off to college because college is where we lose tons of people of the faith. Whatever church they come out of, they end up going to college and then they get influenced by their friends. You remember like, so, you know, you you go to school, your mom and dad help you move in, they buy the little booster things for your bunk bed so your bed sits up higher off the floor and you put stuff underneath it and you get your room set up in the dorm and you go to church and you're a Christian and then you start not acting like one and living a lifestyle that's not Christian, the other people around you see that and it affects them. Right? If it's good for you, is it good for me? All right. Paul tells them in this, in the next verse, that he has told them this before. He's reminded them. There's this consistent message of sexual, physical, really, purity for believers that comes from Jesus and the apostles as we read the text, right? The final two verses of this passage sum it up well, right? We're going to go, we read through five. I'm going to do six, seven, and eight. And it says, uh, we don't, The Gentiles don't know God. And it says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger and all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. So last two verses are this. For God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. All right. So if God has not called us to impurity, but holiness, Whoever disregards it, disregards not man, but God who gives you the Holy Spirit. So that's verses seven and eight. We are not called for impurity. We're called to be pure. We're called to be holy. We're called to be set aside. As God is setting aside us through that process of sanctification, we're also called to sanctify ourselves. We're not disregarding the call of man, or the church or leaders or even concerned friends when we engage in this type of immorality. Instead, we're disregarding God. Does that make sense? Like, just because I tell you not to do something, like, I, can, you know, Chad and I talk regularly, I could be like, hey man, here's the five things in your life you need to work on that you were doing wrong. I'll show them the Bible verses, here they are, I'm gonna lay them out for you. Here's what Jesus said is best for your life. If he continues to walk in those things, he's not doing anything against me. He's denying what God sent him in the living word. He's not denying anything from me. I shouldn't shouldn't take it personally. I shouldn't worry about it. I'm gonna give him counsel on it. I'm gonna hand it to him. It is up to him and God to work that out. Not me and Chad. That's up to him and God, right? We disregard the one who loves us so much, by the way, that he gave his Holy Spirit to us. So if you consider yourself a believer and you think Jesus died for your sin and then sent the Holy Spirit to be with you, to help you, to walk with you, to guide you, you just deny all of that. You're saying you're a believer, but then you're denying all the stuff about being a believer that's important. It's an identity issue. It's about your identity. Who do you identify with? You remember all the way back at the beginning of this book, what's the first book in the Bible? genesis right which means the beginning all the way back at the beginning of the bible in genesis 127 god created us in what in his image he created us in his own image he actually says he created us in our own image if you want to be technical he does that that's a whole other story but he creates us in his image we are built To be, to dwell, to exist with the Father. That's what we are built to do. Remember, when Christ redeems us and he brings us back, do we go just to exist with Jesus? Do we go just to exist in heaven? Is heaven the goal? What's the goal? To be with who? The Father, who we can't dwell with right now because we're unholy. We get to get to be with the creator of the heavenlies. The one being who created everything so masterful that he could create a universe so vast you can't see the ends but can make a molecule so minute you can't see it with your own eye, but can have such important implications for the maintenance of life, that if you changed it, everything would disappear. That being we get to dwell with. He created us in His image. image, And when we strive for holiness, we best identify with that image that He created us in. He He created us to bring new life into the world. And then he commanded us to do that. You remember that? So he makes the helper for the woman. And then he's like, go, make babies. Do this. Make more babies. What an amazing miracle for the God who created Adam out of the dust, created Eve out of the man, and then told them, go. Make more babies. I'm giving you the power to do that. Genesis 2 shows us that that perfect, Union, the intimate relationship of a man and a woman, of Adam and Eve, of man, woman, is perfect in God's eyes. It is very good. God created it to be the perfect intimate relationship. And Satan has worked so hard to peel this apart since the beginning of time. Satan has worked so hard. Remember, who did Satan go to? He went to the woman. He went to the one that the man was supposed to be there to protect. He knew he knew he was going to just work his way into that relationship and try to peel it apart. But remember this. Remember what the man said about the woman when God made her for him? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I, this is what Adam calls Eve. They're a perfect couple. And when they come together to make babies, these babies grow and find a husband or a wife, and they join together to become one flesh. This is what the Bible tells us. I think we forget this in our marriage. We forget the perfect union between a man and a woman looks like if your wife was made out of your side and you were one person. I love you like myself because you are myself, you are me, we are one, we exist together, we think the same thoughts, we love the same love, we serve and sacrifice each other perfectly all the time because I love you like myself, I want you to feel good, love good, I want you to eat well, I want you to be holy and sanctified and get into heaven because I wanna be holy and sanctified and get into heaven. I want you to have the best of everything in this world and in the next. I'm gonna prepare you spotless for the Father Everything I do, I do for you because I would do it for me to be better. I'm never comfortable on on the couch when my wife is uncomfortable somewhere. It is my job, it is my goal, it is my life. God gave it to me because she is mine perfectly. And then he says, when they have children and they come together in marriage and they consecrate that marriage together, they become one flesh. Your wife is not some chick you met on the res (laughs) or some chick you met in college that you just exist with in the same home and happens to have the right plumbing to make babies. That's not how it works. She is you. You are one person. You exist in one flesh, not spiritually, perfectly existentially, right? You are one, you are equals. One flesh, it's the godly image of a union Decide to glorify him. This is cool, that Hebrew word. When you look at one, one flesh, ikad is the number for one. That's just one, that's pretty easy. Then the word basar, it helps us to understand God's intent. Understanding how they were one when he pulled the rib out of Adam. It's that wedding relationship that we have with each other. We're one. Listen to this in 1 Peter 2, when we talk about how different we are, we talk about being set aside and being holy, 1 Peter 2 tells us this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. once, You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we're not saved, then just get to act on our own passion and our own lusts and our own desires. We're not saved, then get to do whatever we want. We're a chosen race. God chose us to be a part of him. All right, here's my commentary. And we'll close with this. So I had this conversation with one of the USASOC chaplains last week, and we're discussing how part of his testimony as a young man in the church, he felt like these rules were mounting. As I said, you know, I haven't been a teenager in a lot of years. It's tough as a teenager, I think. And I think when you go to, um, when you're out in the world, the world tells you you can do whatever you want to do. And then when you go into church, the church tells you, follow all these rules. And it's like you try to you find yourself in the middle, not getting the meat of the the message. And, and I understand that because in his story, essentially he's in church, he's 16 years old, and he's just like, I don't wanna follow all these rules. So he doesn't. So he basically walks away from the faith, right? And he's a chaplain now, but um, being able to follow rules, to what end? Follow rules, to be right with the church, and it led him away. But I think the part that's missing here and that we need to get to our kids, especially our teen kids who are in school, is like, what is your identity? Who are you? Like, who are you? Who did God make you to be? And it's a mounting issue in our culture. Children don't know. Kids don't know. Adults don't know. They can identify with their creator. So they search for ways to identify. I mean, have you not heard the word identity lately? It is like the probably, you know, hashtag identity. Probably one of the biggest words used in the news, in social commentary today why because people don't identify with their creator so they're making up ways to identify with each other with other things with things they do right and uh i don't see lessons like this like learning to be sexually pure i don't see it as a legalistic message we need to set this aside this is not legalism i'm not yelling at you to go fix the sex life in your marriage or to grow up and i'm not i it's not jeff stevens telling you to do this what i think this is is I'm trying to get you to understand who you identify with. And I think out of that, what comes is a better relationship with God and you exist as a more holy believer or a person who's set aside, right? Um, That's the deeper issue. It's an issue of hope and joy and promise and identity. When we find our hope in God and his promise for us, we begin to identify with his plan for us. That's really it knowing who he is and understanding we can have hope in him. When we find our joy in things that he has for us as holy, we develop a clearer picture of how we exist here. We're aliens here, right? Not of this world. He's bringing us into heaven at some point in time. We are waiting on the Lord to return. When we can see the promise that God has for us, that he has promised us his Holy Spirit to come alongside us and dwell within us, that he's promised us eternal salvation, really what happens is we gain a deeper understanding of the price that he paid for us. And these decisions you made, remember there was a price paid for all this when you decide to live however you want and you live in that sin. He's paying for that sin. He paid for your holiness is really what it comes down to. And when we identify with God as our creator, when we, when we identify as children, of the almighty sons and daughters of the one true king, we, we gain a very clear picture of our value as people. He loved us. He valued us enough to come give his life for us. And yeah, there's times in the Bible when God tells us things are right and wrong. It's just a fact. We need to know there are things that are right and wrong. And yeah, this is one of those cases. And Paul is addressing a social issue. He, Paul is very clear about addressing social issues, all of them. He he never pulls any punches. This is wrong, don't do it, this is why. It's a problem, it's a problem outside the church and inside the church, and he doesn't want it to get worse in the church, but we need to look at the root cause of that problem, and that's our identity in in God, in Jesus Christ. Imagine, if we can just get this message out, how much it would change the church as a whole. Like the people around you that are believers you're gonna talk about, Talk to this week at work or, or at school or whatever. Imagine if you just talk to them not about sexual immorality. Talk to them about their identity, like who are you? So you say you're a believer. What does that mean to you? Do you identify with the one true God? Imagine how we could change our own marriages. We talked about that perfect relationship. Imagine if you existed in the in the confines of your marriage between your husband and a wife, where you knew that the value of them was the value of yourself. You held each other up equally, lovingly, sacrificially. We could reduce the divorce rate in the church, that's for sure, when we understood how much value our spouse has. Imagine the lost kids who are struggling with their identity right now and how we could change that, how we could change what kids identify with and we're like, listen, I know things are tough and the community is telling you you can do whatever you want, but God's got bigger plans for you. He loves you. He died for you. He wants you to identify with him. He wants you to dwell with him in heaven at some point with the Father. I want you to identify with him. And he wants to set you aside so you don't look like the community. You don't look like the pagans. You don't look like the rest of the world, right? So then the big question is who do we please? Do you please man or do you please God? He loves us. Jesus loves us. He came for us when we were undeserving. We once had no mercy but through him we've received mercy. And that is it. Who do you please father god we are thankful for you and we are hopeful lord that as the week goes on and we all dive into our bibles to study this week that you would help us to understand who we are in you as receivers of mercy as receivers of your grace lord that you love us and that you sent your son for us even when we were undeserving living undeserved of you living sinful lifestyles um That you came for us anyway, knowing how sinful, knowing that we were rejectors of the truth. You came for us and you loved us and you died for us. Thankful God for this group of believers, Lord, and ask that you would continue to richly bless them, Lord, but also that the Holy Spirit would convict them in the things that they do, the things that they say, and the way that they love. Not just one another, but others, Lord. That they would love them in a way that helped them to understand. That they are different. That they are called to be holy. That they're not like their neighbors. They're not like them because they identify with you, Father. Being sanctified and prepared to dwell with you in eternity. I ask that you continue to richly bless us, Lord. In the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.